a church family, Pastor Brandon here. Um, sorry that it is a day or two longer than when we hope to publish the Left Unsaid podcast, the post-sermon notes that didn't get into the Sunday morning message. Um, a little bit on the delay, as you can tell, my voice is still pretty shaky. Um, been battling an illness and still not feeling the best, but I feel passionately about this because it's good to understand a little bit more of scriptures and how to study and how to look at it. And, and just always, just for me, a little bit nerd out, I love to dig deep and, and I know I can't get everything that I studied and really feel the need and desire to want to share all out on a Sunday morning. So this is a great way to do that. And so we wrapped up the series more than enough this past Sunday, we've been doing a deep dive look at generosity and starting to understand clearly that God invites us to be generous, not because he needs our money or that the church needs the money, all that kind of stuff. It's just that he knows what's attached to giving. In fact, if we started looking at, as you, if you recall two, three weeks ago, looking at Malachi chapter three, and when God has that uh, strong, strong challenge of like, you, you know, how, how have they left? And, you know, are you, you know, does man rob God? And, and they're like, well, how have we robbed you? And he says, you know, by withholding your tithe. And it's just like, bring the tithe into the, the storehouse, test me in this and see if I would not throw open the gates of heaven as it were. And it was just like, is, is this, is the issue really, really the tithe? Is that what God is really saying that we're robbing him of? And it's just like, no, if you go back, it's a call to repentance. You know, if you return to me, I'll return to you. And that's really it. And it's just that giving is oftentimes the most concrete, tangible way to, to reshow if God has our hearts or not. And, and Jesus said the same thing of the treasure principle is like where our treasure is. Well, that's going to indicate where our heart is. And, and unfortunately, and fortunately, money is oftentimes the top competitor for our hearts. But man, when God has our hearts, finances become a significant door of generosity that opens up multiple avenues for the gospel to go out and for people to see the heart of God on clear display because the gospel is a very um, clear picture of the generosity of God. And so we looked at that and we wanted to wrap it up by looking at a miracle that is in all four of the gospels, um, the feeding of the 5,000 and looking at a really peculiar um testing moment that Jesus had for the disciples and and starting to ask the question of like what does this mean for us as as people who would comprise the church you know because we don't just attend the church we are the church we are the body of Christ we are to pray for his kingdom to come from heaven to earth we're to pray for his will to be done we're to help people to meet know and follow Jesus that's what we call discipleship we're to be on mission we're ambassadors and so all of this all of those things that I just mentioned include generosity. And also it, we need then to have a shift of how we see the kingdom of God and how we, we see provision and how God wants us to trust him as we go. And, and so that's what this, I believe one of the aspects, not the only one, but there's a certain aspect to this parable that really speaks into it. And, and before we, we get into the specifics of some of the pieces here of this parable, I just want to highlight that this test, you know, like in John 6, where we're like, let me just paint that picture real quick. Jesus uh, was 
brought to attention as if he needed to by the disciples that the day is getting late. They, we should send them away because they're going to be hungry and need a place to stay. And then Jesus flips it around and, and looks to disciples or in John's version, looks to Philip and says, Hey, you know, you feed them in essence. And it says that Jesus said this to test them because he already knew what he was going to do. Okay. So we got to ask that question. Why? What is the deal here with this test? I think this is on the heels of Jesus sending out the disciples on this like experience ministry trip, as it were, like telling them like, Hey, I'm going to send you out. I'm going to give you my authority, take like no extra money with you, no extra supplies, like just go and people will welcome you in. So it's like starting to experience what like trusting in the Lord would look like. And all of this is a, in my opinion, is a reflection of Mark chapter six, where like, where Jesus started to talk about like, Hey, you can't serve two masters, you know, don't be anxious about what you eat or what you drink. And then towards the end of Matthew chapter six, he says, seek first the kingdom of God. And all of these things will be added to you. All of these things will be provided for you. Right. And so I think there's some of that at play in this parable. And so as we looked at it, it, it's this notion of, do we see opportunities, or let me rephrase it this way. Do we see situations or events or people as kingdom opportunities or just simply always as a kingdom obstacle? For instance, you know, it's just like the question um, of, how do we see people, especially when we feel inconvenienced or when we don't have margin? Um, do we kind of have a little bit of a disposition like the disciples did? A little bit like, hey, you know, hey, send them away. That, that's their solution to the problem. They're, they were supposed to go on this little retreat with Jesus to rest, relax, to grieve the, the execution of John the Baptist and to celebrate and to talk through their missionary experience and they didn't get it. So they're tired. They needed some R and R and Jesus is, is in the same camp as them. And, and it's just like all of a sudden this crowd shows up on the other side and they're like, Oh, great. Our plans are now ruins. This is inconvenience and all this kind of stuff. And so Jesus sees them one way disciples see them one way. So that's a great question for us to wrestle with is how do we see people? specifically in circumstances where we are inconvenienced or interrupted or, uh, <laughs> you know, or when they're just, you know, not, well, we'll just say it this way. They're not really part of the plan, you know, for that day or whatever it is. And, and that's a challenge for me, right? Like, especially like if you get home from work, you know, it's a long day and you're just tired and you just want to veg and something happens and maybe it's just like kids at home and they, you know, it's, inconvenient at certain times or like, you know, your day gets interrupted by a neighbor or something, you know, and it's just like, well, how do you see these opportunities? How do you see these moments? Okay. Like it, it says clearly in this passage that Jesus saw them and he, he had compassion, deep moving emotion within, because he understood their circumstance. He understood what they really need, what they're really looking for. And he says, he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. That is a powerful image. Okay. It immediately makes me think of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And in fact, like there's even that phrase, he makes me lie down in green pastures. And if you look at Mark's, Mark 6, um, 
Let's see here, Mark 6, verse, 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 verse 39. Like some scholar or some commentaries would say that this verse is a reflection of Psalm 23. He makes me lie down in green pastures. You know, you look at this, Mark 6, 39, he says, then he instructed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. Maybe, maybe so. I don't know. Maybe it's just coincidental, but it's just fascinating. Um, but that's how he sees people. He sees people as sheep without a shepherd. In fact, if we go to Ezekiel 34, excuse me, there's there's an interesting um, piece of scripture here where it's not only like this crazy strong rebuke to the shepherds of Israel, but also gives us a beautiful insight into the heart of God. And specifically when we see Jesus on the earth and, and how he even still operates through us, through the power of his Holy Spirit. Ezekiel 34, I'm going to start with verse 2. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the Lord God says to those shepherds. So it's actually going to be an indictment on how they see themselves and how they see the sheep and how they see people and what their purpose is, right? And, And how they see their own life. He goes, woe to the shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Shouldn't the shepherds feed their flock? You eat the fat, you wear the wool and butcher and the fattened animals, but you do not tend the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, healed the sick, bandaged the injured, brought back the strays, or sought the lost. Instead, you have ruled them with violence and cruelty. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd. They became food for all the wild animals when they were scattered. My flock went astray on all the mountains and on every high hill. My flock was scattered over the whole face of the earth, and there was no one searching or seeking them. It, to me, I go, man, this is a beautiful picture of how we see Jesus in this miracle of feeding of the 5,000. So tenderhearted, compassionate. These are his sheep, they're his people, and he knows that they're lost, they're wandering, and you know, out of their own decisions as well, but also as how they are led underneath the religious systems, either if they're Gentile or Jewish, regardless. But he's just like, there, no one's there looking for him. I will. I'm the good shepherd. And we know that Jesus says that all this, like, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the one who lays down his life for the, for the sheep. And so there's something just profound when we see, when you look at the crowd, he sees them with compassion and we know that this crowd walks away from jesus right we we know that you go to john chapter 6 you read that whole story right jesus fed them and also the next thing you know is they want to make him king you know and we don't know if it's because of the way they had him sit in 50s and hundreds which is very much a reflection of how like military commanders would start to kind of like put together the groups of their soldiers in fifties and hundreds, but it's just like, they wanted Jesus to be, to be King. And so they were going to make him King by force. And Jesus like starts teaching them and helping them understand the, the spiritual significance of this miracle. And he's saying to them, like, you know, as like Moses fed Israel manna, you know, God through Moses fed you know, Israel manna in the wilderness, like, like this, this is a reflection, like where Jesus is the, the true Moses, he's a Moses type. And, and he's the one providing now the true bread 
right? And, and he starts talking about like, it's not even this, it's not this actual tangible food that you need for your physical sustenance. The true bread is my flesh. And if you eat my flesh and if you drink my blood, right? Like that's, that's what it means to have part of him, to be like in relationship with him, to be saved or be in the kingdom of God. And, and I mean, they couldn't accept it. They're like, this is a very difficult teaching. Um, we just really kind of practically want our needs met and we want you to be king. We want you to deal with Rome and, um, to, to reestablish the, the right lineage of Kings in Jerusalem and Israel, right? Like, and Jesus like, no. And they left. And towards the end of chapter six in John, he looks to his disciples, are you going to leave too? You know, and they don't. So I find that fascinating that even though this crowd of 5,000 plus were going to leave him, that Jesus still saw them with compassion. Even though he knew what the end result was going to be, he still moved because he sees them as sheep without a shepherd and he knows that he's the shepherd and and he wasn't going to withhold from that and i think there's something absolutely beautiful there and, and so the challenge i find for myself is not so much like do i see them as sheep without a shepherd like as a pastor like that's important i'm, I'm entrusted to shepherd a flock but it, but there's I, I think there's a a beautiful spiritual kingdom principle of how you and I should see people, not just like pastors and their congregation, but like, or parents and their kids. I, I honestly think this is just like how we should see people because now we're new creations. And, and this is how Paul talks about it in Second Corinthians chapter five, starting with verse 11. Therefore, since we know the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade people and what we are is plain to God, and I hope it's also plain to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you an opportunity to be proud of us, so on and so forth. For the love of Christ, verse 14, compels us since we have reached this conclusion. If one died for all, then all died. And if he died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. Now here it is. How should we see people? This is Paul's appeal. And I, and I would say this is the appeal that we need to receive and to accept. Verse 15, 16, from now on, then we do not know anyone where we don't see people or see others from a worldly perspective. Even if we have not have, even if we've known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet we know longer know him in this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. And like, the same as could be said on the opposite side. If anyone is not in Christ, right, they're not a new creation. They're still under the judgment of God and, and they're still like spiritually dead and they're on a certain path. And so how should we see people? So, so vital. I think it, I know, I know it's C.S. Lewis. And I think what the quote I'm trying to say is like, you've never met a mere mortal. And, and I think that's a reflection of this passage that Paul talks about how, how we should see people. So I think that really should change our perspective and how we see ourselves inconvenienced sometimes. Yes, we have needs and, and we trust our needs to the good shepherd. But like Jesus said in Matthew 6, seek first his kingdom and all of these things will be added to you. 
the disciples eventually got their their retreat with Jesus. It just wasn't at this moment. And so that's that's there. So that's that's one aspect of you know, are we kingdom optimists or are we kingdom pessimists? Um, and and I think when we start to understand who Jesus is, specifically even in light of this passage, and in light of like the the other challenges that um, Jesus lays out to the disciples in chapter six and eight regarding this miracle, like if we understand who he is, there really shouldn't be any room for pessimism when it comes to what God can do. Like I think that's that's a major part of the story. Um, if you think about it, the challenge is like you feed them and they immediately were indignant to that. Like, are you kidding me, Jesus? Like, how are we supposed to feed them? This is, this, it would take over 200 denarii and, and that would even, that would even satisfy it, nor should we even use that money to do that. That would feel like a waste. Jesus, like, how are we supposed to do this? We don't have enough resource. How, how are you asking us to do something that seems seemingly impossible and completely unrealistic and set up for failure, right? Like, Jesus, are you just like being idealistic here? Like, what are you doing? And like, you can almost get that feel with, this, with the disciples, but that's the point. Jesus wants them to shift their perspective of who he is and therefore what he can bring to the table and what he can do. Seek first the kingdom, right? We tend to look at the assets, we look at our needs, we look at the circumstances, we look at the situations, and then we, like in our logical, rational brains, start to go, well, A plus B equals C, so therefore impossible. Oh yeah, God can do all things. But like that, that that's a challenge, friends. Like that is a huge challenge. And some people be like, well, you know, it's good to be a realist. Yes, if if living by faith is what you mean. Because like, if God invites you into something, he has every intention of fulfilling what he's inviting you to do. Like, like he wasn't just setting them up for failure. He was testing them. He already knew what he was going to do. He wanted them to learn something about him. And also at the same time, for them to become more self-aware of how they see opportunities and obstacles. Like that's so incredibly important. Like imagine this, okay, for a moment. If if David, when he um, heard the taunts of Goliath, right, and um, and like he just decided, like you know what, he's five feet taller than me. Um, I I've never been in a war. Um, look at look at that shield. I mean, it's it's pretty brassy, you know. Look at look at that spear. It's massive and sore or whatever. And it just went like I don't have what it takes to beat him. So therefore, yeah, God could do it, but I'm not going to because it just doesn't logically make sense. But it's not what he did. He had optimism and the optimism was based in the fact of who God is and also understanding God's heart regarding Goliath, right? So he chose to put his faith in God, in the circumstance, not in the lack or in the little that he had. He just took all that he had and put it into the hands of God and trusted that God would use it to do what God intends to do. You know, just think about, I mean, there's so many, so many Old Testament stories that you could see this, where faith in in God and what God can do and seeing things through the lens of faith can only point to 
a kingdom optimism that is, I would say, more realistic than what we see by sight. And, and I love like even just the teachings where Jesus, like if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, be moved. And it has nothing to do with the quality or the quantity of your faith. That, that is one significant part of what Jesus is saying there. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, the only reason why you can say to the mountain to be moved is because of the object of that faith or the uh, or or what the faith's object is. If it's in Jesus, then that little faith can move a mountain. It's not because you have little faith. It's because of who you're placing that little faith in. Like, I hope that's the part that makes sense. And that's what they were really trying to drive out here. Jesus like wanted them to know this. So I know there's moments in church world, okay, where it's like, there'll be times when we need to call forth people in our church to volunteer. Specifically, a lot of times it tends to be in children's ministry, you know, and, and I know there's a lot of sentiment. People are like, well, you know, I just, kids just ain't my thing, you know, or I don't have enough time, or I just, I wouldn't know what to do and all these kinds of things. And we start to think about like <laughs> our issues or our lack of, and therefore we withhold, or we even sometimes like convince ourselves that, man, I don't know what difference my giving would even make. Like, I, I don't have like a million dollars to give, you know, and it's like, if my 10% is only, let's just say a hundred dollars a month, like, or what have you. And you just like all of a sudden use that as the means you're like, well, this really can't do much. It'll, it'll, it'll do more for me <clears throat> than it would for that. So I'm not going to, but that is missing the point. It's not about the amount. It's about the heart. Is it about your faith? Just take whatever little you have, just take whatever gifts, talents, time you have and place it into God's hands. Let him multiply it. That's why I love how Jesus didn't even let them just to be passive. You know, he's like, Hey, what, what, what do you have? And they're, you know, they're, they could just simply say, well, we have nothing, Jesus. And I love that. He just simply says, well, go and see, go and see and find out what you do have. Right. And so all they found was what Andrew found was a little boy's lunch, five little biscuits and two sardines. And maybe Andrew was optimistic at first. And then he realized how ridiculous it was. He's like, and what is this in light of so many people? And Jesus is like, that's perfect because it has nothing to do with 5,000 biscuits or five biscuits being brought to Jesus. You just bring it to Jesus. That's what's important. So that's why I love that when we understand giving and generosity in view of the kingdom of God, one, we can't be the sole determiners if it's going to be influential or effective or not. God is the one and he can make anything happen. He can multiply anything. He doesn't even need it. He can speak things out of like, he calls things that are not as though they were right. He, he doesn't need any of the stuff that we bring. So why do we bring it? Well, it's a reflection of our heart in faith. That's why I love it when people, the people of God understand generosity, that it's not about, oh man, I got to give. It's not given reluctantly or compulsively. It's giving cheerfully, hilariously, seeking and understanding that God wants to bless and his goodness. And he wants us to have our heart 
given to him and he wants us to live and walk by faith. It's so beautiful. So that is, I, I really just wanted to kind of like just recap a lot of that because it's so important. Um, because it basically says, go and see what you have. It means we, we all have something to bring. We all have something to bring to the table. We can all offer something to God. One, if the Holy Spirit is residing in you, in other words, if you're a new creation, you've been given a spiritual gift. Okay, like you have been given a spiritual gift. Bring that, bring that to the table. Let God multiply it, man. But just serving in youth, I could probably do so much more, blah, 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 or just, you know, hospitality. I could do so much. No, 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 don't. Don't be the ones who determine if it's going to be effective or influential. Just bring it to the Lord. Do it for him and it's unto him and allow him to be the one that displays his power and his grace and his mercy and his goodness. Like, absolutely. So incredibly important. I forgot what else I was going to say on that. Um, <laughs> so there you have it. You can laugh at me and that's going to be a perfect pause for me just to take a sip of coffee. I really, I don't remember what I was going to say at all. Um, apparently, it probably wasn't that good then. Oh, we all have something to bring, right? Spiritual gifts, that's there. But even resources, we all have resources at some level, even if it's not a lot. Even if we want to be like the widow, the poor widow who gave all that she had, even though it was very, very little. Like, we all have something to give, you know? And it's just like, we just compare what we have in comparing it to other people. And that's, that's not right. Um, we need to look at our resources through the lens of the kingdom and just leave it to the Lord and, and learn to be content, you know, because Paul says in Philippians four, he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him, which means he can also live in godly contentment with little. That's, that's a powerful concept. So we all have assets that we could probably sell, right? I mean, that's that sounds a little foreign and sketchy to bring up, but man, we see that happening in Acts, you know? And it's just like people are eagerly desiring, wanting to give. There's, there's y'all, you have time. If you're breathing, you have time, you know? For people to say they don't have time is just like, man, come on. And then just like thinking about it too, when people are like... um, you know, I, I tithe with my time and not money. I always want to ask them, are you, so you're serving 40 hours, <laughs> you know, or whatever, like how many hours a week, let's just say it's 40 hours. If they just want to say, I'm going to tithe off of a work week is 40 hours. You, so you're serving four hours a week, which then equates to about 16 point something hours per month. Like really? that'd be amazing. Then there would be no need for child <laughs> like volunteers or we, there wouldn't be a volunteer shortage in the church. So I, I think this is just a real serious heart gut check at multiple levels. We all have something to bring and God's just saying, go and see, go and see, bring it to me, test me and see if I will not multiply, if I will not bless all that kind of stuff. So the, the parts that I kind of wanted to pull out during this, this time is to go, I found it rather fascinating that when we look at Mark chapter six, verses 45 through 52, and if you jump to Mark chapter 8, and you look at verse 11 through 21, you see Jesus um, <laughs> referencing the miracle 
of the 5,000 twice as a means of like rebuking the disciples and their hardness of heart or their unbelief. And so that tells us something that there's something, some sort of connection between the feeding of the 5,000 and faith that we, we need to kind of like just pay attention to, right? Like kind of lean into a little bit because if they missed it, even though they didn't have the Holy Spirit, I, I get it, but they, they got to see certain aspects of Jesus that the crowd didn't get to see or the Pharisees didn't get to see. And they got to hear um, Jesus unpacking spiritual truths in ways that nobody else got to. Like if you go to uh, Mark 4, the, the parable of the seed and sower, and he says like, man, the secrets of the kingdom of God are revealed to you. Like there's these, you know, they have ears, but never hearing eyes, but never seeing like that Isaiah 9 indictment that's there. There's something more like there's something in this story that should serve as a warning to us about how we see Jesus and how we understand Jesus in every circumstance, but also as it relates to being a disciple or follower of Jesus who's on mission for Jesus. So let me just read this, Mark 6, 45. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat to go ahead of him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while his, he dismissed the crowd. And after he said goodbye to them, he went away to the mountain to pray. Well into the night, the boat was in the middle of the sea and he was alone on the land and he saw them straining at the oars because the wind was against them. So very early in the morning, he came toward them walking on the sea and want, like, I just, I love this and wanted to pass by them. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and they cried out because they saw him and were terrified. And immediately he spoke with them and said, have courage. It is I don't be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were completely astounded. Now look at this verse 52, because they had not understood about the loaves. They were astounded because they had not understood about the loaves. Instead, their hearts were hardened. What in the world? <laughs> like, what, what is it that we're missing here? Like, what is it that we're supposed to understand here regarding the loaves? <laughs> and and it, to be honest, I, Mark is a little bit silent, you know? And so it's like, we can kind of dig into it and ask some good questions and just think through principles and whatnot. But like, I mean, when you think about this miracle, this is not the, the first water miracle scene that, that the disciples got to experience. And, you know, granted, they, they're exhausted. You know, you, like in the middle of the night, do you ever have like these moments when you thought you saw something and you really didn't and you get a little bit terrified? I mean, like when's the last time you ever saw somebody walking on the water? You, you know, like, have they ever seen anybody walking on water? Is walking on the water a normal thing? No, of course not. And so when they're straining at the oars, they're exhausted, they're ready, fatigued, probably, you know, very much sleep deprived, all that kind of stuff. And their emotions are even more worn out because of the highs and lows of the the journey prior to the feeding of 5,000. And then the the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And now here, and, and it's just crazy. I love it. Jesus intended to walk past them as if to say, Hey guys, what's up? I'll see you on the other side. And and they were freaking out and rightly so I, I get it, but it's just like, what, what's this deal about hardening the heart? Like, like instead, because they didn't understand the loaves, they were astounded or they were terrified and their hearts were hardened. 
There's something about they missed out on who Jesus was and who Jesus is, right? Or maybe it was just simply they didn't expect Jesus to show up in their moments of need. You know, like why didn't they recognize Jesus? It wasn't like he was an apparition at this point. He wasn't like, you know, kind of like transparent or translucent. He was, it was him. He was, the only difference was he was walking on the water. Like same Jesus, right? Like, could it be they just didn't like, I, I don't know. This is kind of where I lean. It's like, did they just reject who he was or like were terrified of, of this ghost because they did not simply expect that Jesus would show up. I, I don't know, but that's how it feels for me. Somehow their terror and their amazement was um, part of their lack of expectation. You know, what is it that they don't understand about the lows, you know, and what does that have to do with walking on the water? I think it's just simply, they were blind to the presence of God and his compassion for others. Like, I think there's something noted deeply in, in that, you know, um, but nonetheless, like, I also think like to miss that connection. Okay. To miss that connection is, is, is almost like a warning. And it makes me think of Hebrews four when, um, the writer of Hebrews talks about like, Hey, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the desert. You know, like don't miss on what he's saying to you. Don't miss on what he's trying to encourage you to do. Don't miss what he's inviting you into do like today, right now, if you hear his voice, if you've experienced him, don't harden your hearts, receive it. So there's a lot of areas where I start making this connection. And it was like, I start thinking about like, man, if there's fear in your life, we'll, we'll bring that fear to him because he's the one who can calm your storms and calm the anxieties, like, and all those types of things, like bring it to him because he cares, right? Bring whatever it is to him. He can do more than all we can ask or imagine. Expect him to show up in the areas of our brokenness. Expect him to show up in our areas of weakness and expect him to show up in our areas of need that there's some significant aspect to this. Like the disciples weren't able to feed the 5,000. They had nothing. Their resources pointed to impossibility, but they just brought whatever it is they had, which was again, an impossible amount to be able to do that. But that's the point. Recognize who Jesus is and what he can do. Hence why I keep saying kingdom optimism is really the only path for a life of faith because God can do all things. All things are possible. So if you struggle with that, I think that that's a big, big time for us to be like, Lord, show, show me my heart. Help me understand um, who you are. Show me how I approach you in regarding this, in my lack of, how do I see people and how does that affect how I see you? Or even the flip side, how do I, like, this is probably a better way of phrasing it. Like, God, show me how I see you as a means of helping me understand how I see people. So just like, you just take it. You need to recognize that Jesus is the one who controls all things. They shouldn't be freaking out at this moment that Jesus can walk on water. They shouldn't, they shouldn't be in fear. They shouldn't be like, this is a ghost. Like, 
like awe and surprise, I think that's appropriate. But like to miss that or to be like, I can't believe Jesus is doing this. Like, come on. Like he just spoke to the wind previously, like, and he just fed the masses with some biscuits and sardines. Like, no, 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 no. He can speak one word to calm the sea. And if he doesn't do that in your present circumstance, it's because like, man, he's still loving and he still wants to pull out faith in your life. And he wants to have you give him your heart over and over and over. So the second time we see this warning of uh, missing of the miracle of the 5,000 comes in chapter eight. And just a real quick walkthrough of chapter eight is like, well, in chapter eight, verse one, you see now Jesus is going to feed the 4,000. And they get to have another opportunity to feed the masses with not much. And they go through it and they are amazed again. Now they're witnessing multiple feeding miracles and all these kind of stuff. And then we look at verse 11 and now Jesus is like going toe to toe a little bit with the Pharisees and, and, and going to give the disciples a spiritual warning. So he goes on, he's like, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, demanding of him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, why does this generation demand a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to this generation. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and went to the other side. So the disciples had forgotten. <laughs> I, lo I love scripture. This is this is. This is a funny little story. The disciples have forgotten to take bread and had only one loaf with them in the boat, which is funny. They just picked up seven baskets full and they only just took like one loaf. Then he gave them strict orders. Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They were discussing among themselves that they did not have any bread. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Like this, this is comedy at its best. <laughs> like truly think about this. I mean, I, I, I don't blame them, right? Like, oh my goodness, I can't believe we just took one loaf instead of like, you know, maybe one of the seven baskets that we just <laughs> gathered, like, and we're going on another journey and this is all we brought. Oh man, maybe he's warning us to not buy bread, you know, from anybody any Pharisee who's selling bread or even like people who would represent Herod, like don't no, like Jesus is speaking to them of like a spiritual principle in it. And it's regarding the fact that they're testing God. Like they, it, it, it's not even a pure heart. The Pharisees aren't testing Jesus out of a pure heart. Like give us a sign and then we'll believe it's like, no, they're, they're trying to kind of trap him a little bit. They want, they're, they're trying to get Jesus to once again, authenticate who you are, that you come from heaven and all those kind of things. It's like, no, the, like Jesus, like enough has been shown. Like enough has been shown. You, you, there's enough that should convince you. And if you just want another sign, you, you really have no intention to believe. You, you, you represent the ears, but never hearing eyes, but never seeing in, in your heart is never really going to say yes. Like that, that's what's going on there. So he's saying, beware of the yeast or the teachings of the Pharisees and how they constantly want to be like, you got to have this proof and this proof and this proof and this proof. It's like, no, no, no. Like they're never really going to believe. And in fact, like, he's just like, no more sign will be given. You know, like signs, like if you go to 
John's gospel, signs are a prominent feature of, of helping people to believe, to point to Jesus as the Messiah. But like this desire that they're, they're pushing on Jesus, like if you, we don't know their intention can feel a little bit like, yeah, this is reasonable. It makes sense. But Jesus is like, man, you guys have seen enough. I'm like, really? Like, why do they demand a sign? So there's, there's more going on than what we just simply read here. He's like, the sign is you're not going to get another sign. Well, kind of, that's the way it feels. But he, he, he's like, guys, listen, I'm not passive aggressive. I'm not a Minnesotan. Sorry, Minnesotans. We, we tend, to, I'm a former Minnesotan. So we tend to be passive aggressive up there. So like a little bit of this is Jesus being passive aggressive, man, don't, you know, be careful of the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. And he's like, no, no, you guys, no, that's not what I'm talking about. Stop talking about bread. My goodness. And I love how Jesus kind of like goes through this, like this, like staccato questioning, like verse 17, aware of this. He said, why are you discussing the fact you have no bread? Don't you understand or comprehend? In other words, it's like, do you not know who I am and what I am capable of doing? Like, don't, like, do you have hardened hearts? Like, do you too still want more signs to believe who I am and what I'm capable of doing? Haven't you seen it? Like, enough? Like, come on, don't, don't be like them. Don't eat the same bread that they're eating. Like, look at me. You have seen me. Like, you, you just get this. Like, why are you discussing the fact you have no bread? Don't you understand or comprehend? Do you have hardened hearts? Do you have eyes and not seen, ears and not heard? Ooh, Jesus is now pulling out that Isaiah 9 indictment, even, even though that's not necessarily them because like jesus even says a little bit later like later on you'll understand like they'll, they'll get it their their intentions and desires and motives are not the same as the pharisees they're just a little bit dull <laughs> you're like come on same with us same with us we have experienced god do something in our lives he's provided he's answered a prayer he's done x y and z and then when another circumstance arrives that is almost in kind we forget who he is. We forget what he could do. And we have a hardened heart towards God. That's what's happening. Do you not remember guys that when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of leftovers did you collect? You can see I'm just answering with tail between the legs. 12. Correct. When I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you collect? Seven. And he said to them, don't you understand yet? <laughs> Man, there's something about the fact that Jesus wants us to understand more of who he is and how the kingdom operates. And he, he, he wants us to get beyond the need for signs and constant proofs of who he is. Because he wants to show us. He, he was teaching them a spiritual principle, and yet all they could see was sight. All they could think about was their resources and the provisions and their weakness and their forgetfulness and all of those things. And he's just like, guys, come on. It's not about you. It's not about you. It's me. It's about me. I'm not talking about literal bread. Come on. Eyes of faith. Come on. Like, just imagine 
we do the same thing. We go through circumstances and situations. And again, when it shows up in kind or another circumstance or situation that calls upon faith and trust in Jesus, we're like, well, God, show yourself. <laughs> you know, it's like we're almost testing God in that regard. And that's an area where we're not really allowed to test God in. That that would be unbelief. And so, friends, I, I just want to encourage you, don't fall into the unbelief of constantly needing signs. At some point, we have to learn to seek first the kingdom. And at some point, we have to truly trust on Jesus for all things, right? And, and as we move forward in, in mission together as a church to help others to meet, know, and follow Jesus, we, we also have to look at our lack or our resources and assets and bring them to God's hand and trust that he will do what he needs to do with it. Instead of going, I don't know, God's not going to show up. I don't know. I don't get, you know, all the kinds of things. It's like, no, 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 no. There's more that's there. Okay. And so that's why I want to encourage you. And I want to like, just go like a good way for us to wrestle with this is to literally go to that Hebrews four passage and just go, okay, if I'm hearing his voice, how am I hardening my heart? I think one aspect of hardening your heart is if three weeks you felt like God's stirring inside of you to start giving and you have yet to do it. That's why the word today is so important. Because if we don't do it today, we know that when we delay obedience, we will more than likely not obey. That's just like one of the guys who said, you know, Jesus, hey, I will follow you, but first let me. And Jesus is like, no, no, you know, let the dead bury their own dead. You know, like foxes have their whole, like all sorts of things. He's like, no, no. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. That's, that's one area. It's like we hear it. We felt the Holy Spirit challenging us, convicting us, encouraging us, nudging us, even we agreed with. But if we don't move by faith in it, that's a hardening of heart. Okay? And we can take this principle across the board in any area of need. We need to enter into the rest of God, the shalom, and we do that by faith. And we do it by placing our faith in Him, in who He is, and in what he's able to do. Not in ourselves, not in our amount, not in our time, not in our abilities, but in him. We just go and see what it is that we have, and we take that, and we bring it to him, and we trust him to do the work of multiplication. So I hope that this series was a good series for you. I would love, truly I would, love to hear how it's been a challenge to you and a blessing to you. Um, I'm really, really excited for the next three weeks as we're going to be looking at the kind of the culmination of our focus in the fall of enjoying God. And so we're actually going to have a three-week um, dive into scriptures of what does it mean and what does it look like to enjoy God? And is that like appropriate to enjoy God, delight in God? Um, and so it's going to be a really sweet, sweet time together. And I pray that the joy of the Lord becomes our strength and that we can like really find peace in the depths of our heart and joy in the depths of our heart, no matter what circumstances arise, because he is worthy of it. And, um, at his right hand, are pleasures forevermore. And so we're going to look at that and dive into it and understand it more and why God, um, 
is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. So I would love for you to join us. Um, but I hope this was also a blessing for you. Um, again, any questions or like, I would love to hear any kind of stories and how God was serving or change or not serving. I'm sorry, how God was challenging and um, working in your hearts during these past few weeks. That would be great. Um, just want to give an encouragement. If you have those God loves you cards, find a way. It's just to simply bless people with that. We're going to keep doing that. We're not going to let that slip. Uh, we want to be generous people. And this is a small way of cultivating generosity in our lives. And for people to get a, like a, oh, wow, I can't believe God would do that. That's really sweet. And at the same time, like if you still need help um, understanding how to get in the game with giving, it's simply just think of it this way. If you haven't given at all, just start, just start giving. Okay. And then if you've been giving, but it's been inconsistent, like, man, like start to go like, okay, I'm going to start giving in a planned fashion. I'm going to make it consistent. And then maybe the next step from that is like, okay, from my giving is plants. Now let me put that into a percentage. And then like, if you're like, I've been tithing 10% for a long time. I think like, it's good for you to start to go, okay, what would grace have me do? So now we start to think about what, what giving looks like in terms of sacrificial giving as an offering that goes above and beyond because that's what grace does. Grace has no limits. We give beyond our means, you know, just like it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. So, church, love you very, very much. Um, looking forward to what the Lord's going to continue to do. Thanks again for listening to Left Unsaid.